Joshua Dickens. Josh is a genius. No joke. <laughs> Does it say that on my LinkedIn? Josh is a genius. No joke. He can design an interaction, make it beautiful, and then code it up for you. All lickety split. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Full Stack Whatever. I am your host, Michael Lomans. And today, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with Joshua Dickens. We talked about a ton of things, and some of my highlights are his thoughts on prototyping and where he hopes to see technology go in the next couple of years. Here is episode 22, Big in Japan. Hey, Josh. Hey, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited you're here. <laughs> you sound really excited. <laughs> no. Making me feel very was, comfortable right now. I was like, <clears throat> I was like, I always sound so excited. I should sound less excited and maybe make a change. Yeah, you know? well, you don't want to be too enthusiastic. You really want to make your guests feel like they're not welcome, so they perform better. <laughs> that is a true way of management. I'm very thankful that you're here. We worked together at Instagram in the olden days, which was really awesome. I was really appreciative of when you joined. I think you came from Apple at the time. That's right. Yeah, you, you interviewed me. me. I interviewed you, yeah. yeah. You brought a really good vibe. I was like, ooh, it's a nice person. It's <laughs> a nice, very smart person. This person should be on our team. This is the prototype of the person we should have on our team. Yeah. Which is funny because you prototype a lot. I did. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> I remember just to talk about that interview process because at Apple, the interview process was very much just like, meet someone and hang out and get their vibe, which is important. But the Facebook interview process was very, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this now like knows the Facebook interview process by heart because now everyone comes into it super prepared. But I didn't really know much about it, but I really enjoyed it, actually. Like I loved the focus of like, oh, we're going to do a critique and we're going to talk about past work and we're going to do a problem solving. And it was just like the best thing about it was that beyond being able to, you know, show my work and meet the team. It was like a little test run of actually what it might be like to work with mm -hmm. you and with Ian Silber and the other folks on the team. So anyway, I just remember coming out of that interview and just thinking like, yeah, these are people that I could really enjoy working with. Yeah. And I think what we, a lot of when I look back at that interview loop was and I have no idea if it actually changed recently or if it's still the same. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still the same because it's a really solid loop. But what I really found interesting is that it took a lot of inspiration from the engineering one because the engineering one had the ninja interview and the pirate and whatever, like the Jedi. And it really meant that every interview had a very specific role. Mm -hmm. If you look at past work versus critique, the thing that in my mind is like, it's basically you're looking at the past and then you look at how someone in the present reflects on work that is not theirs. And so you get such a large spectrum of a picture of a person already mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by doing two 30 minute, 45 minute calls. Yeah. And then when someone comes on site, and you ask them to do a 30, 45 minute prezo, then you get an expansion of that password and see what their narrative building structure is. Then you go deeper on background because that is the how did you reflect upon your time doing that password, which is a really interesting layer. Yeah. And then you go into problem solving. And that is like the, oh, looking at the future and at getting something put in front of you. How do you deal with this information? How do you work through the problems? And I think those were that's, that was yeah, the that loop. was basically the loop, right? The one thing I'll say about how it's changed, the loop itself hasn't changed, but I've seen over the past, I mean, I left a year ago, but 
everyone coming in over the last few years I was there had completely trained for the Facebook interview yeah. loop. Yeah. The presentations to a T were almost all the same. Let me show this thing. Let me show the metric impact that it had. It got to a point where I was just like, I just want to see some cool stuff. I just want to see your creativity on display. I mean, it's it's nice that you, you know, are able to like take in business goals and translate them into designs. But I could just tell that everyone was just really like they were studying to the test, not for the mm -hmm. actual outcome. Yeah. And like the problem solving exercise, which to me is the most fun because you literally just get to be creative. I mean, everyone came in and they felt like compelled to show me their entire process. I won't say everyone, but most people nowadays, they want to show you this very like regimented process, which is part of what if you Google Facebook interview process, what are they looking for in the problem solving exercise? It's like, OK, I'm going to spend five minutes ideating. I'm going to spend five minutes mm -hmm. uh, defining problems and, you know, just just draw some boxes and let me see the design. Yeah, let me <laughs> see know? how you actually think. Yeah. Right. To me, what I always found interesting is I did so many problem solving exercises. And the most important part for me was to identify where it, does someone feel comfortable. That's the whole thing that you look for in that loop mm -hmm. or in that in that interview mm -hmm. session. It is not necessarily where they start. It's what do they circle around every single time or whether they circle back to because that is their comfort zone and that comfort zone often really closely relates to their seniority level if you are very comfortable talking about the business strategy and how it all connects to it and you can't connect it to the pixels then it's all air basically if you can show everything from the pixels to flows to architecture all the way up to business strategy and you can just navigate up and down that stack very comfortably, but you are most comfortable in the strategy part, all of a sudden, you know, well, this person has seen a lot of these problems before. Mm -hmm. They're very comfortable, like, dealing with this scenario. This is where, like, they currently want to spend their time. Because subconsciously, that's where you end up. Yeah. yeah. And in that same vein, you can have someone who can be really good at the business strategy piece and really hit a couple of the marks but really wants to talk a lot about the architecture. Right, right. And then you know, oh, this is a different archetype of person. And that's really the goal with that whole session. Mm -hmm. Too many people have just thought about this as it's a test I must pass. Yeah. And rightly so, because success ratios on that as well. Yeah. At a certain point, you know, people had hiring goals. You have to hit the hiring goals. And then you started doing like COVID hiring. And the thing in COVID hiring is also like COVID hiring means COVID interviewing which means remote interviewing, social cues, the ability to interact with someone in front of a whiteboard goes away. There's like a lot of changes yeah, there as well. Yeah. yeah, that was really, really challenging. Yeah, but I do appreciate you going back to that moment and seeing like, oh yeah, these are the people that I'm going to be interacting with. Mm -hmm. And that was also, I think, the luxury of having a small Instagram design team and having everyone be part of the interview process. Yeah, yeah. And... For folks who weren't comfortable or didn't want to do the sessions themselves, we would have you do lunch because mm -hmm. that was the other session. Right, right. On campus, there was always the lunch session. Yeah. And I it was like, jazz yeah, it's like one or two people right. either from across the org or from like not even the same function or whatever. They would also give you a different spin on the company and their experience there. And one other thing that I learned really early on 
which I now preach is very few people that I met at Facebook would paint a pretty picture. Everyone was very realistic about what we were doing on a day to day. They were totally fine talking about the, some of the design debt that we had on like certain relationships and projects that didn't go very well. And for me, really, I mean, I came in through the Instagram acquisition, but for me, as I was making friends across the organization, it made me feel really like, okay, no one here is trying to paint the prettiest picture of the reality. We're all here. We're all honest about our challenges and we are here to solve them. Yeah. Oh, you know, and well, actually what was really funny um, related to like the people like being really honest was when I was interviewing for Instagram, I don't think I've ever said this publicly, when I was interviewing for Instagram or like I had met with Kevin and I had met with Shane and I had done a Skype call go way back when <laughs> with uh, with Mikey to like start contracting remotely and then we were going to like figure out my visa situation. At that same time, it was like a really weird week. It was the week that Steve Jobs died, which mm. was it was like 12 years ago now. Or something. Mm. I got an email from, I mean, I don't even know if it was really him, but like from Ev Williams, I got an email from this recruiter at Instagram and I got an email from Facebook, basically. I had lunch with like some of the folks at Medium at the time. I was visiting San Francisco, which is why I could have all these lunch meetings. I had taken the remote call with Facebook and I met with Jorn, who like came in on the sofa acquisition, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who's also a Dutch person. Yes. And Jorn, like be the interviewer, he was like, you're like early in your career, your stuff looks good, but like you really seem like you want to be building a lot. Mm-hmm. If you want to be building a lot and you want to get it at a high quality bar, don't come here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy fuck. Wow. That is like some feedback, basically. And it was like, yeah, I'm totally fine like pushing you through this thing. But like if I were you right now, I'd probably like see if there's other options. And the other option for me was Instagram, which then we eventually, you know, like 360 all the way over <laughs> into Facebook which is where he was working on Snap, which was the Facebook camera product. And so the first person that I walked up to when we were walking through the quad to the Building 17 war room that they were working on, it was Jorn. And I was like, here we are. Uh, I'm back. (laughs) (laughs) Which was really, really funny. Wow. Anyway, good sidetrack. Completely just jumped into it. Sorry, Um, yeah. Taking me away from my shtick of reading LinkedIn's reverse chronologically. uh, Yeah. Keeping me on my feet. Yeah, anytime. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) what you're here for. That's what I'm here for. Which also shows why we work together so well. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to, I really want to like do this LinkedIn one because we Mm -hmm. we could have just jumped in, but there's a really important part on this LinkedIn that we need to get to. (laughs) Okay, okay. Basically, like you've been a designer in all kinds, ways, shapes or form, but most notably, I'm going to, I mean, you started in in, in 99. I'm going to call out happypuppy.com because you were a freelance reviewer there. Yes. Where you did some work. I'm going to call out Mikey's hookup because we recently talked about this yeah, again. Yeah, got to shout out uh, Mikey's. We got to shout that out and just talk about that a little bit. You spent over seven and a half years at Apple mm-hmm. before you spent over eight years at Instagram. Yeah. And recently, almost a year ago, joined Humane. That's right. That is the play-by-play of yeah. your professional career. Yeah. However, before this all, it <laughs> says NYU BFA in acting. <laughs> that is... My- which. Yes, very useful degree. <laughs> so you had, you had an undergrad in acting and then you went back to NYU in 05. Did you can did you do a postgraduate degree in acting or did no, you No, I went was to that design? So yeah, I if yeah, starting at the beginning, studied acting at NYU was really 
trying to pursue that. I had a theater company. I was doing a lot of downtown, like off, 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 off Broadway shows. I had a public East, East access show. Yeah, exactly. Some friends and I put together a public access show for the youngins. Public access is how you could get people to see your videos before there was YouTube. Just basically every cable network was required by the federal government to provide public access to their network as part of the conditions of them having a monopoly in a given municipality. So anyway, <laughs> the closest I got to stardom <laughs> as an actor. My acting career wasn't going anywhere. I was kind of doing a lot of freelance graphic design, designing um, postcards and flyers for the shows I was doing, building websites for people. But it was all just not really making a dent in the world. And we, we can talk a little bit about Mikey's hookup. I was mostly doing freelance, like working from my house, my apartment in Williamsburg. At a certain point, I was like, this is great, but I just need to be around people. It's funny to think about, you know, the last few years of COVID and remote work because, I mean, I hated it in the year 2000. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, before it was cool. Before it was cool. Like three hipster generations yeah, ago, probably. Yeah. yeah. So a friend of mine was like, oh, my friend Mikey has this little shop um, in the Williamsburg mini mall and he's looking for someone to help out. Mikey has an amazing story. I won't tell his whole story here, but I went and met with him. I He offered me a job like, like part time and it was great because I could like work on my freelance stuff, be around people, sit in the Williamsburg mini mall, hang out at the coffee shop. My first day at Mikey's hookup was actually supposed to be September 11th, 2001. And I showed up and I was like, are we working today? What's up? And he, so Mikey, like Mikey's hookup, for those who don't know, is I call it a hipster radio shack. He basically sold at the time like guitar cables and USB cables and blank CDs. And he sold mini DV tapes. The whole premise was for him, for all of the hipsters in Williamsburg to not have to go into the city to go to B&H Photo so they could get their gear. Anyway, people on September 11th, everyone was coming and buying mini DV tapes. And he was like, I just I can't profit off of this. So anyway, little sidetrack on Mikey's. Mm -hmm. I ended up designing all of Mikey's collateral for his shop. And we did all these ads for The Onion, which used to be a print publication. Yeah. And they had a very like anything goes policy. And we ran a lot of ads that probably now would be frowned upon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I had this little anime cartoon version of Mikey. If you know Mikey's hookup, you've seen it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just him with a speech bubble. And his tagline was, if I don't have it, you don't need it. But then, so it was just that. But then each week we would run a different snarky quote in the quote bubble. Yeah. So anyway, I was doing that, acting, freelancing, fixing computers, did a lot of computer repair. Nothing was really going anywhere. So I just had to go back to grad school. I went to ITP at NYU. Yep. Which so this is where Michael Sharon went. Yeah. Mike Sharon, yeah. who I met him when he was, it was bef obviously before he had joined Facebook, but he had, what was his, he had a startup. Um, Socialite. Socialite. Yeah. yeah. So he was good friends with Dennis Crowley, who was teaching a ubiquitous computing class where I was really into like smartphones. We were basically building in Dennis's app, like check-in apps, because that's what he did when he was at ITP with the first version of Dodgeball. So anyway, ITP is this kind of magical, like, 
art and design and technology kind of playground and people come out of it as people in the industry. A lot of my friends are artists and like creating just wild interactive art. And honestly, that's what I thought I would do. I really thought that I would go to grad school. My goal was to fuse my creative side, my love of storytelling, of performance with my technological bent, my design. I didn't know what it was going to look like, honestly. And that's what's cool about ITP is they really encourage you to just come in with no intentions. Just experiment and play in your first year and see where it takes you. And I really fell in love with software that first year. I, they teach you the basics of programming. I did a lot of like processing and Java and I got comfortable enough with coding to have it be just part of the things I like to do. I just love to make things come to life. And then at the end of my first year at ITP, it's a two-year program. You know, everyone's like signing up for summer internships. And Apple had come to recruit interns. And I interviewed and lo and behold, got an internship. And the internship was with the .Mac team, which later was known as MobileMe. Now is mm -hmm. known as iCloud. And at the time, like Apple was not a web company and all of my design experience is mostly like web design. And so to be able to get a role on a team at Apple that was doing web stuff was pretty lucky. Also at that same time, .Mac was undergoing a transition because like web 2.0 was taking off and we were going from mostly building like content websites when there's like a web mail app and things, but like really making web apps. And so a lot of the projects I was working on were this transition from web pages to web apps. And we were cloning all of the Mac apps for the web um, was kind of the strategy at the time, which was awesome. I was like learning how to design apps from some of the best people in the business. And we were at the time, .Mac and the iWork team were under the same VP and we shared an office. So I was hanging out with the designers of Keynote and numbers and pages. And I just remember listening to some interaction designers talk through some behaviors of, I think, how the numbers spreadsheet was going to work. And this is actually before numbers had actually been released, I believe. And I just remember thinking like, A, loving just hearing how the minutiae of understanding like what's going to happen when they click what would the user think if they click this and this happened i don't know they might think that and going through those same kind of machinations in my own head on the things i was working on and one of the things i realized was a lot of the way it was exercising my brain was very similar to how i approached acting which is surprising to a lot of people but i mean i think the way i've rationalized it over the years is so much of acting is about putting yourself in your character's shoes in the way that I was trained, it was all about figuring out their intention. Like, what does the character want? And then you as an actor are trying to get the character what they want through the words that you're speaking that are on the page and the way you're performing, the way, you know, that the intention behind your voice, all those things. And the analysis to really understand the core of what the character wants in a given scene in a play or a, a film is a lot like what we do as product designers understanding our users, our customers. Given a scenario, a, a user's trying to like create a spreadsheet or share a photo, imagine all, and it's a big part of it is really using your imagination, what scenarios they might be in where your software can actually help them achieve their intention. And so, yeah, I realized this scratches the same itch that acting did for me. Some of it anyway. I mean, I, I think 
Also, as my career has progressed, I've found ways to embrace some of the performance side. Certainly, a big part of the Apple culture was this presentation culture. It's like keynote, right? That was the language of design at Apple was presentation. You'd present your work in a keynote to the executives, to whomever. And so a big part of that is a storytelling, you know, like how am I going to like convey my idea and get people excited, helps to make people laugh every once in a while. You know, there's a lot of those skills that are transferable. I'm sure this will come up more as we just talk about it, but I had this internship at Apple. At the end of the internship, my manager, Meg Frost, who is a dear friend and a real champion who gave me all the opportunity I've had. At the end of my internship, she was like, look, we're in the middle of this big redesign where we're turning the whole service into this web app platform and we really need you. We don't want to let you go at the end of the summer. Will you, will you join full time? And it's kind of frowned upon, like usually you're not supposed to lift interns out of their schooling to join. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, I won't say it was a no brainer because ITP is an amazing place and I, I really loved being there. But the whole reason for me to go there in the first place was to sort of open the door to some bigger opportunity. I had all of these things that were not really going anywhere. And like now I have this chance to like be a designer at Apple. How could I say no to that? I do remember when I went back to ITP, the head of ITP, the founder is this woman named Red Burns who passed away a couple of years ago, but she was this like four foot 11 redheaded spitfire of a woman known for just being outspoken and kind of intimidating for a lot of us, but well-loved. But when I told her, I said, Red, I'm leaving the program. I got a full-time job at Apple. And she looks at me and she was like, that's the worst decision you'll ever make in your life. (laughs) I was like, what? What? I wasn't expecting that response. But, you know, I think it's safe to say she was wrong. (laughs) I mean, I took it all with a grain of salt anyway. But anyway, yeah, so I'm a grad school dropout proud to say. <laughs> and yeah, so I joined the team full time that summer. And what was also interesting was I mentioned I was like really into like smartphones even before I joined, IT- before I started ITP. And I thought maybe that's a path I would head down. We had a relationship with Nokia at the school and I had done some projects on the Symbian smartphones. And I was like, ah, I really want to do stuff with smartphones. And they're really like the wave of the future, man. <laughs> and then, but I was like, well, but Apple, I guess I'll get back to that smartphone thing a little while later. And uh, the wave of the future. Yeah. So this was 2006 and six months in, not even six months in the following January, Apple announced iPhone. And I was like, oh, I get to work at a smartphone company after all. Yeah. And eventually all of, the, all of our efforts on the web sort of started to translate to the phone, which was awesome. Were you there during the whole mobile me blow up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just remember that one of my dear friends who was so gracious to let me stay at his place, Farouk, was at, oh, yeah. was yeah. at yeah. mobile yeah, Farouk me Farouk and time. I worked really closely during that time. He never really went into details, but he was just like, it was bad. Yeah, I'll say a couple things about it. I mean, there, if you want to hear the whole story, there, there's been articles about it and There's various versions of it. My biggest takeaway from it, I mean, I think it was definitely a disaster. And even the design team, and I was in this weird position when I joined. A lot of the work I was doing, a lot of the designs I I was making, I was also prototyping. 
And I had the bright idea to build all of my prototypes. You know, I was using things like Scriptaculous. Do you remember that? Oh, like yeah. Library. Yeah, yeah. But the Eng team, the UI engineering team, had started building all the web apps using this library called Sprout Core. Yep. Which Charles Jolly created and he was hired and was kind of the architect. Of. And it's how Majd got to Apple. Yes. Majd was an intern um, yep. when I was there. And that's how I got future episode. Yeah, yeah, that's how I got roped into interviewing at Instagram, actually. But I started prototyping all of my designs using Sprout Core because I thought, well, this will make it easier for Eng to like actually implement them. But also it could do things that Scriptaculous couldn't do. It seemed like a win win. What ended up happening as like we were like in crunch time to like get mobile me out the door. Your um, code went live. I not only that, I be- basically became a UI engineer oh, great. for about yep. four months or so. And I maybe longer. I can't even remember how long it was. I mean, it, it felt longer than that. But and so that meant when the site went down, you know, and it was all hands on deck, I was one of the people who was there. The the funny thing was it wasn't the web apps that failed. They were fairly stable. And two of the web apps that I worked on were the Mobile Me Gallery and iDisk. And a funny story, like the homepage when you went, when you logged into me.com was meant to be mail because it was like the most important app, but that was the one that was falling over the hardest. And so we redirected everyone to iDisk, which was the thing that I worked on because it was the most quote unquote stable. So I sort of pat myself on the back. But the, <laughs> the thing I wanted to say about that, whole, that, especially that period where like okay, the site's falling over. Everyone is working 24 hours back to back. You know, it's like, it sucked. But at the same time, like we all went through something together and we came out of it. You know, I think most of us bonded, you know, really hard through that. And, you know, there's, like I said, there's some funny stories about Steve Jobs dressing us down as as an entire team, which again, sort of a badge of honor, you know, like, Steve was infamous for berating people <laughs> and to have that to be one of those people is I mean I'm glad it wasn't like a one-on-one situation. Yeah. Um but yeah, that was an interesting time for sure. Anyway, feels I mean that was an eternity ago, but 15 years, yeah. Yeah. That is exactly one unit of eternity. <laughs> that yeah, that gets you eventually to Instagram. Yeah. So, um, which was managed, and you also know Chris. Yeah, right? Chris, Chris Wheeldryer, who was the design manager at Instagram, had been on the iWork team, and like I said, we had worked closely together. I knew him when I first started, and then over the years, like a lot of the iWork integrations with iCloud, we collaborated. So it's it's another kind of funny story. Managed. He had asked me a few times to like come have lunch. I was always busy, but I had just had my wife had just given birth. Like I was on pat leave, basically. And I was like, finally had some time to like take him up on his offer of having lunch. Oh, and, and managed to text me right the day before. And he's like, oh, do you mind if Chris Wheeldryer joins us? You know him from Apple, right? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Sure. And as I pulled into the parking lot, I'm like, typical Facebook. This like, is a recruiting campus thing, lunch. isn't it? You know? And sure enough, Chris joins us 10 minutes into lunch. And I'm like, hey, how's it going? What you up to? And he's like, I'm good. I'm good. But I don't want to beat around the bush. We're hiring. And are you interested? Sounds like Chris. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the reasons I was going ho to join, I was like, well, I I have Chris. I know Maj, but I like Chris. I felt like I had a good relationship with and it was going to be a safe spot Mm because 
to me, and we talked about this before, like a big part of what joining a team is for me is like, who are the people I'm going to be with? And um, two weeks after I started, Chris announced that he was leaving the company, which was just a gut punch, I think, to everyone on the team. Yeah. But for me, I was just like, what am I going to do? I don't like who has my back? I mean, I really was like, oh, no, I've made a terrible mistake. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I was still excited about the projects and the product and stuff, but I was also like, Is, did I, should I like go back to Apple? Yeah, your like, colleagues you know, were trash. Like, you, were. Well, <laughs> you know, like, I was like, I was like, I was looking around. I was like, well, I've got good teammates and it's a great product, but it still was like a little bit shocking. And the design was also very tight. We were like really this like small little pod. I remember when... I think we had about like four designers or something. Maybe like it was like Tim, myself, maybe Connolly had joined. And Kevin was like, we need to find you guys a manager. Mm. None of you all here are going to be the manager. You guys are like really good at executing. We need yeah. to find you a manager. Yeah. I was having a one-on-one with him and he was like, who do we hire for this? I was going to product design weekly at the time, which roughly had like 40 people in it probably or something. And there was one person who was always asking really hard questions yeah. from anyone who was presenting was being, was facing these tough questions. Mm -hmm. And these tough questions came from none other than Chris Wheeldryer. And so I was presenting sometimes there and I kind of had seen them do this before. And I was just like, okay, I got to be ready for this guy. He's going to ask some follow-up questions. And so I'm going to like game it out already to figure out like what he's going to ask and what, yeah. what I'm going to answer. I think the way that I uh, presented it to Kevin was like, there's one person on this whole design team that I'm scared of. Mm -hmm. And it's Chris mm -hmm. because he's so smart. And I think we should hire him. And I think that's how it all moved. He was working on mobile core, but then yeah. he was also working, I think, like a little bit with the design system. Yeah. yeah. And then eventually made his way over. And yeah, really one. I mean, my first dedicated design manager and mm -hmm. someone that I learned so much from so fast including like his tenacity of uh, prototyping everything in Keynote, which was really yeah. awesome. Yeah. Really like, I was just like, wow, you can do all of that in Keynote. Cool. Yeah. That is how you present design work. Still a big fan, I got to say, of Keynote to this day. Figma has replaced a lot of what I used to use Keynote for. And obviously I use Origami Studio still to this day. To this day hardcore. Probably the most, that's probably the most used tool for me day to day yeah. right now. Quartz Compose and Origami is probably my biggest like designer thing that I bet against that I was wrong on. I don't know that you were wrong per se. There were a whole set of options. And at the time it was like, Kuhn was also a prototyping framer yeah. at Facebook. Yeah. And so I was just, I would just sit with him over the weekends. I would try and make some prototypes for Instagram. I would break framer and then he would fix it. And then I would use the new version 0.3 point something. Right, right. Because I was just like, I don't want to deal with all these noodles. I'm not going to get good at these noodles as good as I am at just writing a bunch of code, basically. Yeah. But I do have to say, I mean, that was like the age of, I think Form was alive for about a year before Google mm -hmm. acquired it. Mm -hmm. There was another one that starts with a P. Principle. Principle. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there were a couple of these things. I mean, yeah, there's this cycle that happens with prototyping tools and I would love to like just nerd out about prototyping tools for a bit if you're cool with that. Yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, I have used not all of them, but almost all of them, especially during that kind of heyday of like I built some crazy Instagram prototypes in Framer 
did a ton of the design work for what became Instagram stories in principle. And then internally at Facebook, there was Quartz Composer with the origami plugins on top of it. And then they rebuilt it from the ground up um, when Apple deprecated Quartz Composer. And so I was using the early versions of what was called Diamond at the time that Andrew was building. For me, it's all about A, like what am I going to be most efficient in? And B, like what kinds of interactions or what kinds of things do I need to prototype? And what's the most effective way to do it? So over the years at Instagram, Origami Studio became the answer because I'm building camera UI. I need a camera. I need to be able to take photos. I prototyped the first versions of Boomerang in Origami, like little looping videos that you could capture with your real camera. So much more powerful than a static image or, you know, a lot of the, the stuff I was doing in principle was great, but it was like, now I've just got to have these stock photos, you know, and I've gotten to the point with Origami Studio that it's just second nature and the way that code is for some people, like patches and noodles are for me. The thing that I love about Origami Studio is that you get real-time feedback of what you're working on and you don't have to like know what the right values are. You can kind of just like fudge them around and you can, because you can see, oh, if I make this a 10, the thing moves up 10 pixels. Okay. I guess it's going to be, uh, maybe it's 12. Oh yeah, that looks good. You know what I mean? The way you, you would in a 2D design tool. Whereas like if you're writing in code, especially if you have a bigger, your prototype gets the longer the compile time is. Framer was pretty good about being real time until you got past a certain level of complexity yep. and you'd have to wait like three or four seconds for your, all your code to, to refresh. And then Framer X took it a whole nother direction, which was like, let's like lean in. Well, it was a mix of make the easy parts really easy, but make the harder parts a little harder. By yeah. going, but the advantage, I guess, at the time was like, oh, it's all React. And then you can just hand this stuff off to developers. I don't know. I didn't. Well, and then Framer Motion came out, which was a really big kind of for the web industry because all of a sudden there is a lightweight motion library yeah. that is more effective to use on the web to get more native seeming animations. Yeah. Yeah. But all of them, like, people are like, which prototyping tool should I use? And I'm like, I don't care. The big thing is you should make prototypes and there's various fidelities of prototypes. I'm a big proponent of high fidelity prototypes, things that feel as real as possible. It's a superpower when you're like presenting to executives, to other stakeholders, because they'll see it and be like, oh yeah, why shouldn't we ship this? This is a real yeah. thing. It works. Whereas even static mocks, people can pick apart. I'm like, oh, I'm afraid that's not going to work or, you know, but you're like, no, it does work. I made it. <laughs> and I think that's one of the real values in prototyping at a high fidelity, making things that work. And I know that there's the whole cliche about should designers code. You can learn to code or not, but designers should do whatever the fuck they want. But should designers prototype? I think product designers yeah. should, you know what I mean? If you're a generalist, I think having that in your tool belt is invaluable. Yeah. Obviously, this paper prototyping, which is like a whole big, mm -hmm. like, you know, UX design yeah. piece. Yeah. But to me, it doesn't necessarily have to be an interactive prototype. As long as you have a the ability to share a narrative of using the experience and then showing what the like golden path is. Yeah. yeah. Like what's the happy and like that's, showing the happy path. That's what Keynote was for me for yeah. nearly eight years at Apple. I mean, probably I don't know if you remember from my interview, like I designed parts of the photos app, find my friends, 
like all these interfaces in Keynote. Like mm -hmm. I was not using other tools. I was purely using Keynote because I could tell the story of what happens when you tap this button? Like, what does it feel like? What does it look like? And I used to do a similar thing in Photoshop with like layer comps, you know, you just kind of like oh, yeah. click through each thing. And, but then you can add motion to it. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, this is, this feels like the real thing. So yeah, I agree that there's different levels. And I think I love the finicky interaction details. And that's why I really love origami. It's a great tool for me to get those things right. Yeah. But, you know, Keynote, man, it's great. It's great. What I'm thinking of as you're saying this is how few people probably nowadays with, well, especially now with like smaller teams and like downsizing, but even before that, how people don't always have time to do that level. Or maybe I should say how not every team and organization sees the value of prototyping or has a team that can really leverage prototyping well. Mm -hmm. And so that ends up being like prototyping doesn't really become a part of the equation. Yeah, It's much more about narrative storytelling, theoretically walking through these things. It seems to me like there's only very few companies and then pockets inside of companies that are truly doing deeper prototyping work still in a world where we just have a lot of flat mocks yeah. going out the door. I mean, it takes it takes one person who enjoys it. <laughs> it's easy for me to say, yeah, you should prototype because I enjoy it. But like, if you can find some hook for yourself that makes that an enjoyable thing, no one ever says, oh, I didn't like that you prototyped that. I didn't like that you showed something in high fidelity. Sometimes people just want to see wireframes, but like if given the choice between static mocks and like even a click through Figma prototype, because you can do pretty high fidelity with Figma prototyping now, it's going to be a value add. You know what I mean? And I think certainly what the trajectory of my career has been highly built off of just my desire to like bring things to life. You know what I mean? To whatever fidelity I possibly can from those early days. Uh, on the dot mac team when i was using scriptaculous i think that was one of the things that my manager really appreciated she was like oh this is a, a way to bridge the gap between us and engineering i mean almost too much so and that like i became a ui engineer for a while and that was just it was not like it was not part of the process of the team to do that before i joined some teams will have like one prototyper at apple they have and google have roles that are more like design engineer like people who are just meant to prototype, which some people enjoy just being like that. I think for a lot of us, you want to be not just prototyping, but really thinking about the why. Why am I making this product in the first place? I don't know. I think it's true that nobody has the time, but it's a way you can stand out then. You know, it's a way that you can make your work stand out. Find the time, I guess. Granted, there's a lot of design tasks that don't need it. What I would always tell people when I was teaching origami classes at Facebook and externally too, start with things that don't seem like they need a prototype. Even if it is just really simple stuff like a push navigation transition on your phone, that's a low learning curve. And you can take two static mocks and make them come to life as a way to learn a tool. That's what I would tell people. 
start there when you're building something in origami. Don't try and build the entire Instagram feed or Facebook paper and swiping things around. That can be intimidating and there's a lot that you have to learn before you can get there. But just start with the basics. And in my experience, people respond well to that. They're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> you know what I mean? It makes a lot more sense to start prototyping smaller things the same way as you design smaller things. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you always think you officially, when you want to become a designer, you start by designing a weather app. And then 10 years later, you design a weather app again <laughs> to see how you've advanced in your so skills. Good. Side note, like the weather app was... So I taught origami with Christian Polino and Christina Varshavskaya. In like Copenhagen, right? In Copenhagen at yeah. CIID. And the brief we gave each year that we taught was design a weather app because it's like something that, you know, you can take it any direction. And last year at my son's middle school, they asked me to teach like a little mobile app design. And I was like, designing weather app. But it was amazing. One of the kids, um, his app was basically a betting app where you and your friends could bet on what the weather would nice. be. I was like, that's kind of smart, dude. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We may have to cut this and make yeah. it into a startup. Yeah. <laughs> that's really funny. That's really funny. So you didn't leave Instagram when Chris left. Correct. I did not leave Instagram. Yeah. Until that's where we were. That's where we left. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. bring it back. You were like... A couple of weeks in, Chris had announced his departure. We were, I mean, you were about to be immersed in this super tight group of designers. I think we had shipped video already. Yeah. This was like the feature lull era, a little bit. Pre-stories. Two things were happening. Well, when I joined, we had just formed a growth team. That's when yep. you and I worked a lot on growth when I first started. The, the reason I was excited to join Instagram was creative tools as a passionate user of creative tools i fancy myself a creative person like that was the thing that excited me i've always loved video i mean i mentioned my public access show and so i started to work a little bit on video stuff like the sort of 2.0 of video because there mm -hmm. were just things you couldn't do i think in the first version of video like you could do very few things couldn't yeah. trim a clip and so i was like very excited to build a video editor basically and so i was doing a bunch of prototyping of that stuff and then growth things phone number sign up and dots and usernames and things yep. like that but growth was not my passion you know i was not excited about it although it was definitely important for the company but i managed to transfer to be on the creative tools team full-time which working on video at one point we we're going to build a standalone video app or me and majd and Carpenko's were working yep. on on something that that kind of fizzled out a little bit as a standalone app, but then fizzled back up with Chris Connolly designing the Hyperlapse app, yep. Hyperlapse, and that sort of started this whole like we called it the satellite apps. We're gonna have yeah. this kind of creative labs Hyper of Hyperlapse, Boomerang, Hyperlapse. Layout, Layout. So Layout was my baby, and it was pretty funny because there were a few different things that Kevin had sort of identified as creative tools that were lacking on Instagram. Text was a big one and collages were one. And we decided to go build collages. And I remember when you would tell people at the company, oh yeah, we're working on a collage app. Everyone just like rolled their eyes. I was like, oh, this is not, this is, I thought Instagram was cool. Like collages are not cool. And we basically set out to prove everyone wrong. Uh, like actually there was something cool here. And John Barnett, who was the PM on that project, did an amazing job of really identifying these trends that were happening on Instagram and like 
looking at this wide swath of the types of photos that people were posting that were collage app. We thought collages and, you know, were a workaround for the fact that you can only post one photo at a time um, and that people were going to use them to tell the story of the birthday party or whatever, have all the four, four photos from their camping trip or whatever. That's not what we saw at all. Audric Collignon, who was our data scientist, did an analysis on photos with faces. And on Instagram, collages were like twice as likely to have faces in them than non-collage photos. So what people were doing was just like, it was someone's birthday, they'd post all their photos of their friend for their birthday. Or they'd take a selfie and do some weird like slice up, one side filtered, one side not, or whatever. So it was a totally different use case than we went in thinking was there. And then we were also just like looking at all the collage apps on the market. And there were some decent ones that, were, that had a lot of features, but they were all pretty hard to use and just got some really basic stuff wrong. Like it was really hard to pick photos and you had to choose a grid before you could choose the photos you were going to use. And you're like, I don't know what photos I'm going to use. How am I going to pick? Do I need five? Do I need six? Do I need two? I don't know. So anyway, that that's to this day is probably the thing I'm proudest of because it really checked a ton of boxes of things that I like in an app, in an experience. It's a creative tool, which I said is something I was really excited about, but just had the right level of you could make it your own. You could fiddle with it, had some nice interactions of dragging and it would zoom in on faces automatically. So you didn't, that's what it, people wanted to post anyway. Just like little things that felt right and to this day, it still is a super well-reviewed app on the App Store, even though it's super crashy and no one supports it anymore, <laughs> um, sadly. I still use it from yeah. time to time. You ended up eventually leaving last year to go to Humane. Yeah, I kind of want to spend a brief period of time talking about the kind of post-stories Instagram mm -hmm. realm with like stories and reels and like kind of the major changes. Most notably, I think it was like 2018 where... Kevin and Mike left as well. Um, and then kind of like gradually find our way to humane, which yeah. is yeah. current time. Yeah. Yeah. So layout led to stories. It was a big hit. And then Ian Spalter asked me to lead the design efforts on some new way to encourage sharing. And so it eventually became stories, blew everyone's expectations out of the water. You know, it was, was like, that a, it was a hackathon project, right? No, no? it was okay. it was. I guess it's okay to say this. We worked on it for over a year before launch. What was happening was people weren't sharing to Instagram anymore. There was this big drop off in people sharing to feed. Mind you, this is before a ranked feed. You could only post one photo at a time. And it was normal people didn't feel at home there anymore because yeah, there were a lot of Finstas. There were Finstas, but like that was a whole thing you had to do. You had to create another account and so if you did post one photo at a time, it also lived on your profile. It had to be perfect. And we did a bunch of different iterations on what became stories like we thought we will change feed radically to make it a more comfortable place to share. Eventually, feed ranking did that job. It actually showed you more of your friends' photos instead of just top accounts. But stories was a place where people could share as much as they wanted. It was a more of a pull model. So like you didn't feel like you were crowding someone else out of their feed. And it was a place where you could connect with your friends again and not just the Kim Kardashians of the world. Although the Kim Kardashians of the world were on stories and it was one of the reasons why stories was successful from day one, because you didn't have just an empty story tray. Most people didn't. They, yeah. If their friends weren't there, at least 
the top accounts that they followed were. So that whole day zero problem was not. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable. I mean, we weren't sure how to handle that. That was a big, one of the big design challenges was, do we need to let people like reset their graph, create a new stories only set yep. of friends? You yep, know? Yep, yep. Um, and it's funny because a lot of the design elements that we did not do for V1 sort of came back in their own way. Like there's close friends that Ryan O'Rourke designed that kind of let you create a smaller graph of people who could see your stuff. Things like highlights, the early versions of stories were permanent. Um, mm -hmm. And we were leaning into that kind of permanence as like a differentiator. We brought it back with the archive and highlights. But anyway, stories just sort of took over the company. By the company, I mean Instagram, but also Facebook. And it was this was the one thing that was actually increasing sharing across the whole family of apps. And that meant a lot more. Oh, yeah, it was a messenger as well. I just realized. <laughs> yeah, they, but they took it out again. Yeah. They probably took it out again. Yeah, I don't know. It's gone back and forth. But it meant a lot more kind of Facebookification of things, meaning like here was the one thing that was growing. Like, how can Facebook like tap into that? And Facebook was working on their own stories product at that point. Well, let's do like cross posting between your Instagram story and your Facebook story. And let's, I don't know, there's just like a bunch of these, like, let's put a Facebook button in the stories viewer and all these things that made sense from a Facebook strategy as an Instagram designer. It was very frustrating. And I can only imagine for Kevin and Mike, there were a lot of those kinds of things where it was just like, no, we were supposed to be Instagram for years. That's how we've been running things and how we've been successful. And slowly it became more of this is this family of app strategy and everything's kind of seamlessly moving between Facebook and Instagram. And my argument was always like, people like that Instagram is different than Facebook. That is the brand of Instagram. Even though it's owned by Facebook, people know that their audience on Instagram is different than their audience on Facebook. And that's what makes them like sharing to one place or the another. It sort of acts as its own form of audience control. That's a piece of jargon. I realized that I don't know if everyone audience control, audience control. Yeah, yeah. Something that we it's a really big thing in social media. Say a lot in yeah. social media, like who can see your stuff? Yeah. Is it like per object privacy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pop. Um, yeah. And so like. I haven't really talked to Kevin and Mike about their reasons for leaving, although I think they've talked about it publicly in some forums. But I think that was a big part of it. I will say that the trajectory of my time at Instagram, I mean, every year the company, I think, doubled in size. Certainly our user base was growing mm -hmm. every year, which meant that every year it was essentially a different company than the one I was at the previous year. For sure. Which is just a natural thing that happens. And that means you have new, more different goals, stakeholders, ways of doing things. And a lot of those were more from the Facebook side. A lot of our the decisions were like, how do we help the Facebook family of apps? And those kind of things, which I was starting to get burned out about. Um, I, can, I can hear it in your voice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Ian Spalter announced that he was leaving his role as head of design to become the head of a new Instagram Japan team. There was about 12 of us. It was like a full stack team. We yeah. had Peter Lindsley, a PM. Uh, Aicha was our researcher. We had a couple of people that we hired locally in Japan. The whole idea about the team was to like, Japan was like one of the top markets for Instagram. Since um, day one, by the way. Yeah, it always has been. Uh, since stories, like it, it was eclipsing even the Facebook app in terms of growth and popularity. And we weren't doing a ton. We'd done some research and there'd been some like 
task forces to understand the Japanese market. But I think it might have been Chris Cox in like one of their, I wasn't in the room, but was like, we should start a Japan team. And everyone in the room looked around and was like, yeah, maybe we could. And Adam was like, Adam was there. It was like, yeah, we'll figure it out. And Ian has a deep affinity for Japan and sort of raised his hand or slash was offered the opportunity to start this team. And it was funny because before he made the announcement, he messaged me just to let me know because we, we had been through it over the years together. And he was like, hey, I'm not leaving the company, but I'm starting this team in Japan. Like, do you want to come? And I was like, I mean, I didn't respond immediately. I was just like, that sounds amazing, but there's no way I can do it. I've got a wife and two kids and a mortgage and like, how could I pot? And I told my wife and she was like, you have to say yes. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, okay. So, so then it's like, how do we operationalize this? Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing way to make a big move like that because you have the full force of Facebook Inc. supporting it. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah. they'll move you, they'll deal with the visas, yeah. housing, probably also yeah. like, yeah, they plus you have like a social group. Yeah. And we had a, a full team. I think the challenges of the team were that like we had a very broad mandate, which was go do something big in Japan. Cue to go on waves. Like, what does that even mean? It was a great experience because like we were on this literal and figurative island away from a lot of the day-to-day -day politics and given the freedom to go and explore and do fun, cool stuff. But then the whole challenge became, okay, we've come up with some really cool ideas. How do we ship them? All the reasons that I think a lot of us were like excited to go to Japan to like get away from some of the like bureaucracy became that much harder because you weren't in the bureaucracy to make you know, the call to yeah. make the call and get stuff done and, and we had a lot of support from adam and vishal who were heading instagram at the time but it was also really challenging and then on top of all of that COVID happened <laughs> oh yeah for um, sure. so Holy like six shit. months into moving to japan COVID happened and so we all like switched to remote work and i will say i mean it was hard didn't you go get your monitor from the office or something was that you i did yeah i remember that the, i think you posted a story posted about it, it yeah. yeah a bunch of because the what was funny is like the facebook office in tokyo they had leased a new office space at a new building that we were supposed to move into in july of 2020 and we had to be out of the old space but no one was in the office and so we all had to go in and like get our stuff before they cleared out the old office and then this new office was like done and sitting unused for a year, a year plus before we could actually because go there were severe policies in Japan to curb. Yeah, it was interesting. I would say that Japan of all the places to be was probably the best, one of the best. Japan did not do a, could not do a true lockdown. So it was really up to companies. I mean, Facebook had a strict policy on it, but a lot of companies didn't shut down. They had some recommendations and they basically would pay restaurants and businesses like to close early or not serve alcohol. And then the other thing was that they weren't letting anyone into the country. And if you left the country and came back, you had a quarantine, had a quarantine for two weeks. That meant that for like two years, basically, we didn't leave the country. I think I 
came back once in those two years. But we traveled around Japan pretty freely. And our kids, uh, the first few months were out of school or remote school. But then the following fall, they were back in person full time. So anyway, it was good to be in Japan <laughs> during COVID. But it was also challenging work-wise for sure. As I'm sure, I think, I mean, it was probably hard. It's hard for everyone during COVID, I think. As things normalize and I really was getting more and more frustrated with what it meant to work on Instagram. It was really transitioning from this great tool to connect with your friends and family to one that was more about entertainment and passive consumption, see reels, which I'm torn because like I said, I love video and I love that like Instagram is like building these video tools to help people create cool videos. Like I think that's great. But so much of my experience using Instagram has become unsatisfying. I mean, you remember like people will, in research sessions would just tell you over and over how much they loved Instagram. Oh, I love Instagram. Oh, I love it. And it was just like, yeah, it feels so good to hear. And and I, I don't know, I started to hear less and less of that. And I started to feel less and less of that. Where I just like, I would spend 15 minutes on Instagram and be like, what did I just do? Yeah, I was getting pretty burnt out on that. And I was also like, I had heard rumblings about Humane and I had known Imran a little bit when I was at Apple. And there's a bunch of people, our CTO was someone that worked on iCloud. A bunch of iCloud people are there. My friend Juan, who was also there during the mobile me meltdown and worked on the iDisc app. So some, some good people. So I started chatting with Christina, who's like our design scout, maybe like two years ago, actually. I just like had a conversation. I was like, I'm in Japan, like I'm not doing anything, but like I just want to get to know you and let you guys get to know me. The more I learned, which before I joined, I did not know what we were making, but the principles and the kind of um, values behind the company really aligned with where I was at. I think there was this sense that the iPhone for all that it had helped us has also had some unintended consequences. And there's an opportunity to like change things up and we don't have to just build a world that is more screens strapped to your eyeballs. That was the other thing at, at Meta that, I mean, Meta, like it became also very clear that the way to have an impact at the company, meaning to like do meaningful work that ships was to work on the metaverse. And my heart wasn't in that. And I, I said it a lot, but it was like, we just spent two and a half years at home separated from people in the real world. Oh yeah, why the fuck would you want to keep on doing that? Why? Yeah. yeah. Like it sucked. I know some people like remote work for the flexibility it provides and whatnot, but the actual work experience for me as a creative person who thrives on the energy of people in the real world, I was like, I cannot. So yeah, what little I knew of Humane excited me and the people, again, comes back to that, like George Kettenberg joined a little bit before me and he was just raving about it and saying I'm the most creative I've been in my whole career. And so, yeah, it's been almost a year. I can't say much yet, but Imran has a TED talk that you can watch the YouTube video of, which you should yeah. definitely yeah, yeah. watch and get a glimpse. It's a nice like sneak peek into what we're building. The thing that was most surprising to me joining was just how big a part of the product that we're making is centrally built around AI. And to think that is where all of the energy and excitement in the tech community is right now is like feels pretty lucky to me and exciting to be a part of that.
because I wasn't seeking that out at all. You know, I mm -hmm. you know I played a little bit with Da Vinci and Dali before before it really blew up with ChatGPT. The thing that you mentioned just now, which really has stuck with me, and also I had you know months and years of kind of a little bit of an internal mea culpa on, is the amount of eyeball time spent in these products. And to me, it felt the golden age of social, like 2013, 2014, 2015. That was the time when social was increasing your connection with your friends. Mm -hmm. It was increasing your ability to be creative. It was increasing your ability to express yourself, even if you didn't find yourself to be creative. It was, here is where I'm eating right now. And I'm checking in here so you know that this is probably a place to look. At. It was just this era of very specifically the millennial audience having a kind of like a digital landscape mm -hmm. with Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Foursquare, Pinterest, Airbnb, where like, oh yeah, this is like a new way of living. Yeah. That was that was utopian in in for a couple of years mm -hmm. and then came crashing down really fast when the systems got overloaded and we I remember being back in college and like talking about information overload and talking about Marshall McLuhan mm -hmm. and going through like this whole cycle of seeing like that there was an era of internet where that was created that created our behaviors on the internet then there was another era which was web 2 and this was like the third era. You can call it Web3 now, but like really mobile was like that third era yeah, of the internet. Yeah. And it was a really exciting time. And then around 2015, going into 2016, you know, it, it started going in that different direction because there was too much content to have to deal with. Things were repetitive and less engaging and networks hit their, you know, the bigger the network, the more discernment you get, the less people are producing, the less the feedback loop works. And so things started atrophying. And I think to me, like when I saw stories and I obviously wasn't there, but for me, stories felt like that point in your video racing game where you get your checkpoint and you get your time extended, but it was just another arc that was going to eventually fall off. Yeah, yeah. And clearly everything was lowest common denominator interactions. A double tap on a picture is easier to send than a comment. A emoji to send than a story is easier to send as a comment. And all those mechanisms... Well, and a view, which was the actual original kind of feedback mechanism of stories yeah. was the easiest like is the easiest right who looked at my story was the oh yeah you, yeah who looked at my story and then the reverse engineering of like who liked you the most because yes, yeah. like that there was something in there but and, and i think that if you actually look at i mean all of those things are abuse vectors and we have to be like really careful with that but if you look at instagram f at the first time around and you got the the following feed and so you could see what like mm -hmm. your external network was doing that was by far the highest resolution, highest precision, explore next degree. And that had nothing to do with an algorithm. It was always very deterministic. Yeah, yeah. And then the feedback loops were like very pure because it was like it showed up in your notifications and you could like comment on the thing. Well, and I think that like that type of system can work on a very small scale. And I wonder if like, and we're moving, seeing more of this of sort of this smaller scale networks, whether it's private messaging or groups. I, I just feel like as an industry, just as a culture, does everything need to be so huge? The goal of every company is to be the biggest company, it seems like, to get the most users, to 
make the most money. I mean, I, that is the culture we live in. I, I understand it. I'm not naive to it, but it feels like things would be pretty nice if there were a lot more like mom and pop shops. Everything doesn't have to be Walmart. It's nice when you have like your local retailers. And those are the, the kinds of relationships that feel really satisfying to be a part of. And yeah, you need some big entities. But as a consumer of all of these things, I'm a huge hypocrite because like I watch all the Marvel movies, but I'm also like, does Disney really need to get any bigger? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, the thing that you're also reminding me of is I was going on this diatribe about engagement loops and how it's all lowest common denominator. And so therefore it actually at a certain point atrophies the relationship with this person because you you send that like, are they really like feeling like you're connected with them? Right? Like not really. But then the thing that really, and I'm just going to sound like a 60, 70 year old man now, it's like, you know what really grinds my gears? (laughs) You know, the thing that really bothers me is how Facebook in like 2015 had all of the utilitarian products that had a social engine underneath it, events, groups, birthdays, and pages and places basically. And like all this check-in data, all of that was available. And I remember that there was like the, this year where I was sitting adjacent to the events team and their monthly active usage and their amount of events was just skyrocketing. And because the company cared about newsfeed and, you know, the Instagram feed and eventually stories, all of that utility is now gone because nobody came to these products for utility. We didn't convert them into utilitarian use cases. So now the networks are atrophying. And so all the utility is gone because like, it doesn't matter if you put a Facebook event online, no one's going to see it anymore. Yeah. And there was this time where like everything was in one spot and you actually had this promise of, I have a platform where everyone and their mom and pop shop can put an event. It's going to be seen. People are going to be here. And now you have to go back to a vendor where you're going to like what event bright you're going to put your event on it. Mm -hmm. Now now there's like fees involved, all this kind of stuff. So I think that there was like this golden age of like democratization of relationships Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that then immediately like tore apart because the company just didn't care and fostering that. Well, I mean, maybe my point is that maybe that's okay. Maybe that's for the best. You Mm -hmm. know, like maybe it's better that we have an event bright and we have a few different ways that can meet different people's needs. Like, the Facebook events product had to like sort of be all things, all people had to support a birthday party and a concert. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, it's like maybe we don't, maybe it's better to have separate things that, that serve those needs. And Eventbrite can be happy being like the best Eventbrite it can be. It doesn't have to add stories and have a news feed. And you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Although they probably have those features. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think like this contraction we're seeing now just in, the unfortunate layoffs, but maybe one thing that can come out of this is like some more focus. I hope we'll see, but I'm sure there'll be just another bubble balloon bursting five or 10 years from now. I would be happy if we had a lot more focused, smaller companies, a lot more partnerships and you do one thing really well and we'll do another thing really well and we'll collaborate. And like, if we need to, we'll connect the dots and the technology exists for things to interoperate. And I think that's, to me, that's one of the like exciting use cases of generative AI and predictive AI, like being able to speak the same language as different services. You know, like I don't know how to code, 
an iOS app. I mean, I can figure some of it out. Yeah. But I can like ask ChatGPT to help me write the code mm-hmm. to do something I want to do in an iOS app. Similarly, like two companies could really just have their computers talk to each other yeah. through these. That's the these thing that services. I'm interested in. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So maybe it, we'll see if that's, I'm not predicting that future necessarily, but it's one that I'd like to see where there's it, a lot more. One of the big hangups is obviously like, well, what's the source of all these images that generate these other images? And like, there's like a lot of merit to so many of these kind of misuses of people's data. I think that if you actually take that negative and you say, hey, how do I actually connect all these databases to each other? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with like some contract between them that makes sure that ownership lives where, yeah, that you then can build something off of that. Like you generate something out of that. I think that is where maybe and this is idealist like earlier internet person wanting like loving that open api era and finding a way to connect all these things together i think that's what still gets me excited mm-hmm. we're in the week where reddit is sh- shutting down their api for public usage yeah, yeah. and so like there's you know and and for <laughs> for reasons right like costs all this kind of stuff yeah, yeah i get it i think that there was kind of this promise of the internet like opening things up and connecting mm-hmm. them to each other and maybe like the new lightning rod thing can get us there is having paid for or having properly incentivized data sources that can be brought together to create kind of new value. Yeah. But also make software useful again. That's something that mm-hmm. I look at a lot now is you, know, you were saying this earlier where it's like, oh, what was I doing these last 15 minutes? And there's a lot of like funny content. Sure. But basically what we're doing nowadays is just watching small increments of America's Funniest Home Videos <laughs> the whole time. Mm-hmm. And we're even getting more targeted in it. And it is and it is what it is, right? But it feels like, you know, you open this phone, it like sucks you into something. You activate a screen, it sucks you into this other thing. We've been doing pushed algorithmic feeds for, I'm going to say like 12 years now, I think. I think it's time for us to like spend our time differently on our screens. And one of the things that I said when I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, like after I left Glossier and I was like in my COVID sabbatical and I was building Shoebox was whatever I do next, whatever I build, I want 80% of the main screen that you open the product on to be deterministic. Out of all the real estate available, I don't want 80% to be ranked, algorithmic, whatever. I want people to know what to expect when they open this thing or when they interact with this thing. I need these experiences to be deterministic because deterministic things is what you create muscle memory on. It's what you create value out of. This is why I hate the fact that there is no, like they're taking away physical buttons in cars. <laughs> you know, Audi luckily is bringing it back. Mm-hmm. I saw that Volvo in like their new electric yeah, car is taking backlash. it away again. There's a backlash yeah. for sure. It's, it's crazy to like have to wait for your car to boot up their multimedia system to then be able to control the heat in your car. Yeah. Like my car does that now. That is stupid. <laughs> so dumb. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we need more of these interfaces and more of these like services and digital software utilities that come more to us to like solve our problems. Yeah. Versus yeah. like us like consuming whatever they want us yeah, to. Yeah, I mean I think like I I like your framing of like deterministic work. I think there is also a world that is not deterministic, but that is ranked for you to be useful. You know what I mean? Like, I think what we've been trained on the last 
15 years is demanding our attention for things that are useful to the company that's serving it to us for their business goals. Mm -hmm. I think that was for me, I had a similar kind of like intention behind whatever I was going to do next. I was like, whatever it was, I wanted the core thing that I was working on to be the thing the company was selling. There was only so far I could go designing creative tools for a company whose business was selling ads. Like I wasn't designing creative tools to help people be creative. I was helping people be creative to create content that could be shown, ads could be shown next to. Yeah, to bolster um, the network. You know, and that disconnects. I wanted to shorten the sort of distance between the work I was doing and the customer I was serving. And I think it's a, a similar philosophy, which is just make the program do the thing the user wants, <laughs> you know, and they, yeah. they need. Getting back to that, like, what does the customer want? What is their in, what is their intent? How can you actually help them in their lives? And I mean, you can justify scrolling funny videos or there's a lot of useful things on TikTok and on Instagram. And you can justify it and say like, well, people are using it. It's a job to be done. <laughs> you know, like people need a, <laughs> they're hiring Instagram to unwind <laughs> after a long day or, you know, oh my to, God. but it's a job that we've told them they need to be done. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we as an industry, I mean, could be delivering different experiences to people. And I know you can't talk about it a lot right now, but I am really excited to see the work that you're doing at Humane come to life. And the theme around this and partially also was what was divulged in like the TED demo that was this theme around your product being useful for you again, being in service of you and being out of the way as much as it can be. And yeah, I'm super thankful for the time that you took to sit down with me. We're an hour and 40 minutes in, oh, by the right. way. We fucking talked. <laughs> We're going for a two-parter here? What's going on? No, I'm going to... I don't do two-parters. <laughs> that's to uh, edit this one down. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, no, this, this is a really fun conversation. And this is my first podcast. Nice. No, I take it back. Ugh. When I was an intern at Apple, I made a podcast. Oh, cool. Nice. Because GarageBand had just introduced a yeah. podcast uh -huh. feature. I remember that. And Mac was making all this content about how to use iLife and all the and so um, my intern project beyond like working on the apps we were building was a podcast about using GarageBand to make a podcast it was like a tutorial podcast so little inception podcast yeah amazing so this is my second podcast <laughs> fine this is better this one's better hey you don't have to placate me now no, no. after you broke my no heart. thank you thank you for the conversation <laughs> and thanks for having me amazing well, that was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for listening. I'm really thankful to Josh for taking the time to chat with me. As always, if you're new, there's a ton of other great episodes to listen to. And if you'd like to stay in touch, please subscribe in your podcast app of choice. And I'll see you next week.